I um, wasn't going to read this, but I actually had a quote at the end of my message that I wasn't going to use. I just had tucked it on the end for uh, something else. But John Piper said, The universe exists so that we may live in a way that demonstrates that Jesus is more precious than life. And Ray Pritchard commented on that quote when he said, When tragedy strikes, when life caves in, when your plans are dashed on the jagged rocks of reality, when you find yourself in a place you never wanted to be, that's when you discover what you really believe. As long as things are going good, you don't know what you really believe. It's all theoretical. You discover your theology at midnight. If with Paul and Silas you can sing praise to God at midnight when you're in jail and have been beaten, then what you've got is real. Not only will you discover what you believe in times of trouble, that's also when the world discovers what you believe. Either God is enough or He isn't. Either Jesus is more precious than life or He isn't. As that lady said, our dear sister in Christ, she said, Jesus is worth everything. I really haven't paid a price yet. And yet from most, the perspective of most people, she gave up everything. They lost all their stuff. In your bulletin, I think you received, there's a little flyer there. If you get our chapel weekly updates, it was in that as well. I won't read it all to you. But it just says there, today, over 340 million Christians experience extreme persecution and discrimination for following Jesus. That's one in eight of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Today, on this day, it's the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. It's one day just to remind us that there are millions of our brothers and sisters who are suffering for to follow Christ. And it's a call to prayer this day and to be faithfully praying for them continually in prayer. There's a few ways to pray on there. I encourage you to take note of that and be praying today and throughout the week. Let's join them in prayer as we begin this time of the message. Father, we thank you that we have been blessed with a place where we live in freedom. But Father, many of our persecuted brothers and sisters join with Paul and Silas who rejoiced, with the apostles who rejoiced there in Acts that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. For it is in that moment that what they really believe spills out. Father, we join with our brothers and sisters who suffer as we pray for them. We, their, their main request is not that suffering will end, but they request, may we be faithful in suffering. So, Father, we ask that you would help them to stand, to be unshaken, we ask, we join them in asking that their persecutors would come to faith in Christ. 
Father, we ask that you would provide their needs spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically. And Father, that through it all, that Jesus would be glorified. That the gospel message would go out powerfully. That the world would see the witness of our brothers and sisters and know that's real. Father, we pray for the other seven out of eight believers around the world who aren't in persecution. That you would give us boldness to stand strong. To live out our faith in our daily life as well. Father, help us not to forget our brothers and sisters in their distress. To give as we can and pray often for them and stand with them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know that there really could be a better introduction to our message today than to focus on the persecuted church. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Second Thessalonians as we continue our series in this Marvelous little book. You will probably recall if you've been around with us for the weeks in the messages before this one in the book. And if not, I'll tell you now that this little church, the Thessalonian church, was a persecuted church. What we read about and think about our, as our brothers and sisters undergo suffering is exactly what these dear brothers and sisters were undergoing. Remember that they were relatively new Christians, not like most of us who have been believers for years and years, many of us for most of our lives. Most of these had only been Christians for about a year. And now they are enduring severe trials because of their faith. They are being pressured to leave Jesus and go back to their old lives. I'm sure that they endured ridicule and they were ostracized. Perhaps they experienced their loss of jobs, perhaps confiscation of their property. Some probably have been imprisoned. Some probably have been beaten even some may have been martyred, been killed for their faith. And I can imagine that all of us, if we could put ourselves in their shoes or the shoes of many of our brothers and sisters around the world who are enduring all of these things, we can imagine the temptation to waver in our faith. Even the temptation to walk away from Christ and to go back to our old life. We may not endure the sufferings and the persecutions of these Thessalonian believers or those of many of our brothers and sisters around the world today. Yet still, we often experience hard days, heart-wrenching nights, times of sorrow and griefs and hurts and and um, tragedies. 
We still feel the sting of wounds and pains inflicted by others, whether they're because of our faith or not. No one in this world is exempt from the troubles of this fallen and broken world. Most of us know by experience what it is to waver in our faith and to feel at times like quitting when those times come. And so we see that from ancient times all the way until our day today, God does not spare His children from trial and suffering. A German theologian named Otto de Balius expressed this truth well when he said this, God does not lead His children around hardship, but He leads them straight through hardship. But He leads. And amid the hardship, He is nearer to them than ever before. Did you notice that man in the video said that? Christ was there with me. God leads us through hard times for our good, to grow us in our relationship with Him. But these Thessalonians, you may recall a week or so ago, that Paul said they had been shaken. They were shaken in their faith, and he is concerned that instead of growing through these trials, that that they may instead be devastated by them. So Paul is writing this letter, and especially in this section this morning, to encourage them so that they will stand firm, that they'll be steadfast, not shaken. Sooner or later, we all need this encouragement. In the passage before us this morning, we're in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2. I hope you've, you've turned there. We're going to be in verses 13 through 17. And in this passage this morning, I want us to note three keys that will help us remain unshaken in hard times. It will help us to stand firm in difficult times. Verse 13, but we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but we always ought to give thanks for you. And we wonder why. And he started with the word but. And that word but sends us back to what preceded this. It's a contrast. And what preceded this, you may recall, he was talking about the great falling away of the church and the rise of the Antichrist because people were afraid that they were in the last days. And he said in the last days how there was going to be this great falling away and people would follow the Antichrist. They would believe the delusion. They would believe the lie. And they would be condemned. They would perish in hell because they did not believe the truth. And in contrast to those who will perish because they did not believe the truth, he also talked about that in chapter 1. In contrast to that, he says, you are saved. 
The first key here to standing firm, the first key is to focus on the wonders of our salvation. And there are five truths here to treasure about the wonders of our salvation. Five truths to treasure. That's the first key. It's kind of like the the uh, plagues in Revelation where, you know, there's one seal and it breaks into seven. There's one trumpet. It breaks into seven. Well, there's there's one key, but it breaks into five. Okay, five truths to treasure. First is that you are loved by God. He says you are beloved by the Lord. He mentions God's love for them again in verse 16, just when we'll get there in a few minutes. We've already talked about God's love this morning at communion time. It should amaze us. There's an old jingle that says, isn't it odd that a being like God who sees the facade still loves the clod that he made out of sod? Now, isn't that odd? It is not just odd. It's bewildering. Have you ever wondered why does God love me? You know, if I, a deeply flawed person, have a difficult time loving you because of your flaws, and you, despite all your flaws, have a difficult time loving me because of my flaws, do you wonder then how can an absolutely holy, flawless God, who knows everything, Every wicked deed, every wicked word, every wicked thought that you and I have, how can He have any patience and love towards us? That boggles the mind. God's love for us is a marvel and it's the basis of all these other truths. The next four truths about our salvation, they begin in God's love for us. For God so loved the world, John 3.16, that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. First marvel of our salvation, the first truth to treasure is that we are loved. The second truth to treasure is He goes on here in the verse. He says, Beloved of God, because God chose you as the first fruits. The second Truth here is that you are chosen by God. This is the doctrine or the teaching of sovereign grace. It's also called divine election or predestination. What that means is when it comes to salvation, God always makes the first move. And if He didn't make the first move, we would make no move at all. As Romans 3.10 puts it, no one seeks for God. Just like a wanted criminal doesn't seek out a policeman. There's a question here in this text whether the wording should be as it is here in the ESV. Because God chose you as the first fruits, meaning as the first believers in your region, because they were the first among the first believers in the region of uh, this part of of Europe, among the first believers in all of Europe, or as the NIV or the and the King James version, the New American Standard, and others read, says God chose you from the beginning. Is it as first fruits or from the beginning? 
meaning that God chose you from the beginning of creation. I lean towards that reading, as do most of the translations. It's consistent with Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, which says, He, God, chose us in Him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Most of us know that there are fierce debates. And, and many of us as Christians have struggled with this concept of God's choosing, of God's election in our salvation. We struggle with the seeming contradiction between God's sovereignty in choosing our salvation versus man's responsibility to choose and believe. Well, the Bible doesn't struggle with it. It just teaches that both are true. That God sovereignly chooses and man is responsible to choose to believe. I can't explain it. I can't even understand it, how those two things are reconciled. It's way above my pay grade. But I believe both to be absolutely true. I always liked the way Pastor Dyer used to say, when you see the entrance to heaven, as it were, the gospel there above the gates, and it says, whosoever will may come. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then you go through it. You enter into the gates of heaven. And when we look back, it says above the gates, chosen before the foundation of the world. There's a different perspective on all of this, how they fit together. God, it fits together perfectly in His infinite mind. We wrestle, but I just say, quit trying to you know, fry your brain Just understand both are true. And understand that there is great comfort in this truth. And the reason Paul points it out here to these believers is there is a great comfort in knowing that in our times of struggle, when we wrestle with our faith, I love that the guy in the Gospels where where Jesus says, do you believe? And he says, yes, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. We're in those struggles. We're wrestling with, you know, with our lack of faith and in the midst of struggle to know that the tenacious love of God, which chose us before the, before time began, before the foundation of the world, He will keep us through the storms of today. That's the comfort there. The third great truth of our salvation, the third great, great truth which we need to cling to is that we are saved by God. Again, in verse 13, God chose you from the beginning to be saved, there it is, through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. You are saved by God. We're saved by God, it says here, through sanctification by the Spirit. God's aim in choosing us, God's aim in saving us is to sanctify us. That means to make us pure and to make us holy. Ephesians 4, I quoted part of that a moment ago. He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. It goes on to say that we should be holy and blameless before Him. The Bible tells us that God has already declared us holy. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God looks down upon you and declares you holy so that we are all saints. As the Bible often addresses believers, we are all saints in Christ. 
At the same time, we all know we're not fully sanctified yet. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is in the process right now, presently working in us, sanctifying us. And all those who are true believers in Jesus Christ exhibit growth in holiness. As His Spirit transforms us from the inside out, He produces in us the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and on. This process will be finally completed, be culminated in that moment when we are transformed, when we are in the presence of Jesus Christ, as 1 John 3 says, that we will be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. We are saved by God through sanctification of the Holy Spirit, but notice He goes on, through belief in the truth. God's choice of us and the work of His Spirit in us doesn't cancel our choice. It simply enables it. We must believe, but it is the Holy Spirit and it's God's work that enables us to believe. And those, yet those who do not believe will not be saved. John chapter 3. We love John 3.16. I just quoted it a minute ago. But two verses later it says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is, is condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Again, the Bible just simply says both. God chooses, and yet we are responsible to believe. Well, we are saved by God. The fourth truth, marvelous truth here about our salvation is that you were called by God. Verse 14, to this He called you through His gospel. John 14, 6, Jesus is the only way for us to be saved. There is only one Savior. He died on the cross as we celebrated in the communion. He died on the cross for our sins. We are saved by the blood of Christ. The good news of the gospel is there is salvation if we put our faith and trust in Jesus. It is God's love and grace which got the gospel of Jesus to your ears so that you could hear, so that you could believe the good news. And through that gospel then, He has called you to yourself, He says. You know, some people have taken this reality and they've thought, you know, if God is sovereign over salvation, if He calls and chooses those who are saved, and if it's He who, by His grace, gets the gospel to the ears of those whom He has chosen so that they will hear and believe, then you know what? We really don't have to be concerned, all that concerned or all that busy about trying to get the good news of the gospel to those who haven't heard because God will take care of it. That was exactly, that's not a new sentiment. We go back a few hundred years. The year was 1792 when a young English pastor who had a passion for God's Word and studied it while he was working as a cobbler, a shoemaker, then he became a pastor and he became convicted by the Word of God that we needed to be busy about, and they needed to be busy about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. And he was with a group of pastors and he was trying to get this point across. And one of the older pastors, as he was preaching and trying to tell them, we need to be busy sharing the gospel, one of the older pastors stood up in the middle of his sermon and said, young man, sit down. He said, when God pleases to convert the heathen, 
He will do it without your aid or mine. Theologically, God doesn't need our aid to do it. But God has given the job to us. And it is a wrong-headed mentality to say we don't need to bother. Exactly because the Apostle Paul didn't believe that or he wouldn't have endured beatings. He wouldn't have endured the hardship of being on the road and traveling in those days. The heat and the cold and the exhaustion and the labor, the imprisonments, all the hardship he endured expending his life to tell people about Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't believe that because he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In all four Gospels, there is a commission for us to take the Gospel to those who haven't heard and to the ends of the earth. God's sovereignty does not negate our responsibility to share the gospel. But it does guarantee that there will be those who respond when we speak it. Do you ever think of it that way? God's sovereignty and His calling of people and choosing of people guarantees that if we are faithful to share the gospel, some will respond. Because the power of God isn't the messenger, it's the message, as Paul says. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Well, the fifth great truth of our salvation here, verse 14 again, is the aim, the purpose of our salvation so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The culmination of our salvation is us gaining eternal glory with Christ. What we see today, what we experience today, isn't the end of the story. What we experience today may be hard, it may be difficult, it may be suffering, but the best parts are coming and they're forever. So hang in there. That's why Paul confidently declares in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the present sufferings of this world are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. These five truths in these two small verses lay out our salvation, God's plan for us from eternity past to eternity future. A single sentence sweeps us from the beginning to glory. John Stott has a wonderful sentence that helps us grasp the power of this passage. He says, there is no room in such a conviction for fears about Christian instability. Let the devil mount his fiercest attack on the most feeble saint. Let the Antichrist be revealed and let the rebellion break out. Shades of earlier in this chapter. Yet over and against the instability of our circumstances and our characters, we set the eternal stability of the purpose of God. In other words, if we really take all this to heart, There's nothing that should shake us. Take courage, my friends, whatever you are facing. Because God will see you through. As Philippians chapter 1 verse 8 says, says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Very quickly, and I promise it won't take long, 
I said there were one key and it had five points. There's two more, but they'll be brief. The second key here is there's two commands to follow. The first two verses were the wonder of our salvation. The next verse is the command here for us. Notice he says, verse 15, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm. In other words, because of these wonderful truths, don't be shaken in your faith. Don't give up. Don't walk away from Christ. Stand firm because God loves you and He saved you. And your coming glory makes everything now worthwhile. You say, well, you know, Paul, that's easy to say. It's easy to say stand firm if you're not the one who is in the midst of trouble. Standing firm can be hard when everything is around you is being shaken. How are you supposed to do it? Well, first command is stand firm. What's the next command? Stand firm and hold on. Have you ever ridden in a bus or a train where you had to stand? Or an airport tram? Have you ever been there and you're trying to stand and it's difficult, isn't it? If you're like me, you try to pretend you're surfing. (laughs) Can I do it? You know, can I keep my balance and stand? Well, that may be fine. It may be stupid, too. But have you noticed that when you're trying to stand firm, it's difficult until you grab hold of something solid? And it doesn't even take much holding on to stand firm. It's just you need something solid to grab hold to. And you grab that little hand ring or the, or the, the railing. And he says, hold on. What does he say to hold on to? He says, hold on to the the traditions. And we go, what traditions? Our family traditions? We have lots of them. Or our church traditions? There's lots of those in this world too. Or our just our favorite little traditions, you know? Every time I go by here, I stop and get a cup of, you know, hot chocolate. Is that what he's saying? No. There's... He's not just saying the traditions we've made up or our personal or familial, family or church traditions. He tells us, hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us. The Greek word here for tradition simply means what was passed on. He's saying, hold on to what we passed on to you, which, by the way, was passed on to us by Jesus Christ. It wasn't written down then, but it was in the process of being written down. Now we have it. It's written down. It has come down to us through the apostles, the written Word of Christ from Christ to the apostles to us. What are we to cling to? What are we to hold on to? The Word of God. Read it. Study it. Learn it. Follow it. If we do that, that is what will help us stand firm. The third key to help us remain unshaken, verses 16 and 17, it's the power to stand. Power to stand here is prayer. Verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us 
and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. The first part of this prayer simply establishes the basis or the foundation for the request that Paul is about to make of God. It's really a quick review of everything he just laid out in verses 13 and 14. God loves us. He loves you. And he has, he talks about all that he's done for us in the past. He's given to us eternal comfort and good hope. All he's done in the past and all he's done in the present and all he's destined in our future, all of that is wrapped up in that. And on the basis of that, on the basis of what God has done and what he's promised to do, he makes a request of God. It is God who has done all this, by the way. It's not our planning. It's not our superb planning. It's not our great wisdom. And it's not because of our goodness. It's not because of our strength. It's not because of our worthiness, but despite our lack of worthiness. Notice, by the way, it says it is through grace. Undeserved. With all that said... We can't stand firm on our own. We need help, God's strength, God's help, because He's the one who's done everything else. And He's the only one who's going to get us through where we are now and help us stand firm. And so now He makes His request. Now may God, verse 17, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. How should we pray in such times? And how should we pray for others? How should we pray for our brothers and sisters in persecution around the world? Pray that God will comfort their hearts. In the midst of all the distress and all the trials, may they have God's comfort, calm assurance. Like what's described in Philippians chapter 4. Where he talks about don't be anxious, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your requests be made known to God. And you know what he says? He says, and the peace of God which surpasses understanding. It's that comfort, that calm assurance that doesn't make sense. That the rest of the world looks at you and goes, how in the world are you calm now? Well, it doesn't make any human sense at all. It only makes sense when I know that I have a heavenly Father who is sovereign over all and He loves me and He doesn't protect me from the trials. He doesn't take me on a detour around the trials, but He leads me through the trials because He has a purpose in them. I don't have time to read a great quote from Adoniram Judson. Pray that God will comfort our hearts. Second, pray that God will establish our hearts. The word establish means to make them firm, solid. We would, a good colloquialism we might use is set them in concrete. <laughs> so they don't move, they don't shake. Make them solid and stable despite our circumstances. And the outworking of that is that he prays that God will enable every, enable them in every good work and word. The reality of God's presence and work in our life will be demonstrated in every good work and word. What a great goal. That everything we say and everything we do will be a reflection of God's love, 
of God's holiness, of God's grace, of His values. And when that will happen, whether we are living in times of plenty or times of poverty, whether we are living in times of freedom or times of persecution, God will be honored and others will be blessed through our every good work and our every good word. Let's pray. Father, comfort our hearts. Establish our hearts. We pray that for us here today. We pray that for our brothers and sisters all over the world. Especially those who, like these Thessalonian believers, were going through such hard times. We pray that, Father, for all of us. For some of us aren't going through the hard times of persecution, but we are going through difficult times. Problems in our homes, problems at work, problems with our finances, problems with our health, problems with difficult people. Father, establish us that we might be able through Your grace and Your strength to accomplish every good work and every good word. So we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.